Chapter 5, Part 1 Of Autobiography and Theodore Roosevelt This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Ian Hatley Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt Chapter 5 Applied Idealism Part 1 the spring of 1889, I was appointed by President Harrison, civil service commissioner. For nearly five years, I had not been very active in political life, although I had done some routine work in the organization and had made campaign speeches, and in 1886, I had run for mayor of New York against Abraham Stewart, Democrat, and Henry George, Independent, and had been defeated. I served six years as civil service commissioner, four years under President Harrison, then two years under President Cleveland, as treated by both presidents with the utmost consideration. Among my fellow commissioners, there was at one time ex Governor Hugh Thompson of South Carolina, and at another time John R. Proctor of Kentucky. They were Democrats and ex Confederate soldiers, and became deeply attached to both. We stood shoulder to shoulder, in every context in which the commission was forced to take part. Civil service reform had two sides. There is first, the effort to secure a more efficient administration of the public service, and second, the even more important effort to withdraw the administrative offices of the government from the domain of spoils politics, thereby cut out of American political life of fruitful sorts of corruption and degradation. The theory of politics is that public office is so much plunder which the victorious political party is entitled to appropriate to the use of its adherents. Under this system, the work of the government was often done well. Even in those days when civil service reform was only experiment, because the man running an office himself an able and far-sighted man, knew that any fixity in administration would be visited on his head in the long run, and therefore insisted upon most of his subordinates doing good work. And moreover, the men appointed under the spoil system were necessary men of a certain initiative and power, because those who liked these qualities were not able to soldier themselves to the front. Yet there are many fragrant instances of inefficiency where a powerful chief, quartered friend, and or kinsman upon the government. Moreover, the necessary haphazard nature of the employment, the need of attaining and holding the office by service, wholly unconnected with the fixed duty, inevitably tended to lower the standard of public morality, alike among the office holders and among the politicians who rendered party service with the hope of reward and office. Indeed, the doctrine that to the victor belongs the spoils, the cynical battle cry of the spoils politician in America for the sixty years preceding my own entrance into public life is so naked revisits that few right-thinking men of trained mind defend it to appoint, promote, reduce, and expel from the public service Letter carriers, stenographers, women typewriters, clerks, because of the politics of themselves 
or the friends without regard to their own service, is from the standpoint of the people at large as foolish and degrading as it is wicked. Such being the case, it would seem at first sight extraordinary that it should be so difficult to uproot the system. Unfortunately, it is permitted to become habitual and traditional in American life, so that the conception of public office is something to be used primarily for the good of the dominant political party became ingrained in the mind of the average American. He grew so accustomed to the whole process that it seemed part of the order of nature. Not merely the politicians, but the bulk of the people accepted this in a matter-of-course way, as the only proper attitude. There were plenty of communities where the citizens themselves did not think it natural, or indeed proper that the post office should be held by a man belonging to the defeated party. Moreover, and let spokes tied were forbidden to use the offices for purposes of political reward, the side that did use them possessed such an advantage over the other that in the long run it was out of the question for the other not to follow the bad example that had been set. Each party profited by the offices when in power, and when in an opposition, each party insincerely denounced its opponents for doing exactly what itself had done and intended to do again. It was necessary in order to remedy the evil, both gradually to change the average citizen's mental attitude toward the question, and also to secure the proper laws and the proper administration of the laws. The work is far from finished even yet. There are still masses of office holders who can be used by unscrupulous administration to debauch political conventions and finally overcome public sentiment, especially in the rotten bureau districts where the party is not strong, where the office holders in consequence of a disproportionate influence. This was done by the Republican administration in 1912 to the ruin of the Republican Party. Moreover, there are a number of states and municipalities where very little has yet been done to do away with this system. But in the national government, scores of thousands of offices have been put under the merit system, chiefly through the action of the National Civil Service Commission. The use of government offices as patronage is a handicap difficult to overestimate from the standpoint of those who strive to get good government. Any effort for reform of any sort, national, state, municipal, results in the reformers immediately finding themselves face to face with an organized band of drilled mercenaries who are paid out of the public chests to train themselves with such skill that ordinary good citizens, when they meet them at the polls, are in much the position of much masked against regular troops. Yet these citizens themselves support and pay their opponents in such a way that they are drilled to overthrow the very men who support them. Civil service reform is designed primarily to give the average American citizen a fair chance in politics, to give to this citizen the same way in politics that the ward healer has. Patronage does not really help a party. It helps the bosses to get control of the machinery of the party, as in 1912 was true of the Republican Party, but it does not help the party. 
On the average, the most sweeping party victories in our history have been won when the patronage was against the victors. All that the patronage does is to help the worst element in the party retain control of the party organization. Two of the evil elements in government in which good citizens have to continue are one, the lack of continuous activity on the part of these good citizens themselves, and two, the ever-present activity of those who have only a self-interest in political life. It is difficult to interest the average citizen in any particular movement to the degree of getting him to take any efficient part in it. He wishes the movement well, but he will not, or often cannot, take the time and the trouble to serve it efficiently. This, whether he happens to be a mechanic or a banker, a telegraph front operator or a storekeeper, he has his own interests, his own business, and it's difficult for him to spare the time to go to the primaries, to see to the organization, to see to getting out the vote. His work tend to all the thousand details of political management. On the other hand, the spoilsism breeds a class of men whose financial interest it is to take this necessary time and trouble. They are paid for so doing. They are paid out of the public chest. Under the spoilsism, a man is appointed to an ordinary clerical ministerial position in municipal, federal, or state government not primary because he is expected to be a good servant, but because he has endured help to some big boss, or to the henchmen of some big boss. His stay in office depends not upon how he performs service, but upon how he retains his influence in the party. This naturally means that his attention to the interests of the public at large, even though real, is secondary to his devotion to his organization or to the interests of the war dealer who put him in his place. So he and his fellows attend to the politics not once a year, not two or three times a year, like the average citizen, but every day in the year. It is one thing they talk about, for it's their bread and butter. They plan about it and they scheme about it. They do it because it is their business. I do not blame them in the least, but by much the people for we ought to make it clear as the bell that the business of serving the people in one of the ordinary ministerial government positions which have nothing to do with deciding the policy of the government should have no necessary connection with the management of primaries, of caucuses, and of nominating conventions. As a result of our wrong thinking and supineness, we American citizens tend to breed a mass of men whose interests in governmental matters are often adverse to ours, who are thoroughly drilled, thoroughly organized, who make their livelihood out of politics, and frequently make their livelihood out of bad politics. They know every little twist and turn, no matter how intricate, in the politics of their several wards. And when the election day comes, the ordinary citizen has married the interests of all good men, all decent citizens should have in political life, finds himself as helpless before these men as if he were a solitary volunteer in the presence of a band of drilled mercenaries on a field of battle. There are a couple of hundred thousand federal offices, 
not to speak of state and municipal offices. The men who fill these offices, and the men who wish to fill them, within and without the dominant party, for the time being, make a regular army, whose interest it is that the system of bread and butter politics shall continue. Against their concrete interests, we have merely the generally unorganized sentiment that the committee in favor of putting things on a decent basis. The large number of men who breathe vaguely in good are pitted against the small, but still a large number of men whose interests it often becomes to act very concretely and actively for evil. And it is small wonder that the struggle is doubtful. During my six years' service as commissioner, the field of the merit system was extended at the expense of the small system, so as to include several times the number of offices that had originally been included. Generally, this was done by the introduction of competitive entrance examinations, sometimes as in the Navy Yards, by a system of registration. This of itself was a good work. Even better work was the making of the law efficient and genuine where it applied, as was inevitable in the introduction of such a system. There was at first only parts of success in its application. For instance, applying to the ordinary employees of the big custom houses and post offices, but not to the heads of these offices. A number of the heads in the offices were separate politicians of a low moral grade, themselves appointed under the spoil system, and exits, directly or indirectly, to break down the merit system, to pay their own political debts by appointing their henchmen and supporters to the positions under them. Occasionally, these men acted with open and naked brutality. Ordinary, they sought by cunning to evade the law. The civil service reformers, on the other hand, were in most cases not much used to practical parties, and were often well-nigh helpless when pitted against veteran professional politicians. In consequence, I found at the beginning of my experiences that there were many offices in which the execution of the law was a sound. This was very damaging because it encouraged the partisans to sort the law everywhere, and on the other hand, made good people feel that the law was not worthwhile defending. The first effort of myself and my colleagues was to secure the genuine enforcement of the law. This we succeeded after a number of lively fights, but of course, these fights we were obliged to strike a large number of influential politicians some of them in Congress, some of them the supporters and packers of the men who were in Congress. Accordingly, we soon found ourselves engaged in a series of contests with prominent senators and congressmen. There were a number of senators and congressmen, afterward Senator H.C. Lodge of Massachusetts, Senator Coachman K. Davis Minnesota, Senator Orville H. Platt of Connecticut, Senator Cronkwell of Missouri, Congressman afterwards President McHenry of Ohio, and Congressman Dargett of South Carolina, who had war with the business of the spoilsmen, who efficiently and resolutely 
championed the reform at every turn, and without him the whole reform would certainly have failed. But there were plenty of other senators and congressmen who headed the whole reform, and everything concerned with it, and everybody who championed it. And sometimes, to use a legal phrase, the hatred was for cause, and sometimes it was peremptory, that is, sometimes the commission interfered with the most efficient and incidentally most corrupt and unscrupulous supporters. Not other times, there was no such interference. That is, sometimes the commission interfered with their most efficient and incidentally most corrupt and scrupulous supporters. Now other times, where there was no such interference, a man nevertheless had an innate dislike of anything that tended to decency in the government. These men were always waging war against us. These we had the more or less open support of a certain number of government officials from cabinet officers down. The senators and congressmen in question opposed us in many different ways. Sometimes, for instance, they had committees appointed to investigate us. During my public career, without and within office, I grew accustomed to accept appearances before investigating committees as a part of the natural order of things. Sometimes they tried to cut off the appropriation for the commission. Occasionally, we would bring to terms these senators or congressmen who fought the commission by the simple expedient and not holding examinations in their districts. This always brought frantic appeals from their constituents, and we would explain that, unfortunately, the appropriations had been cut, so that we could not hold examinations in every district, and that obviously we could not neglect the districts of those congressmen who believed in the reform, and therefore in the examinations. The constituents then turned their attention to the congressmen, and the result was that in the long run, we obtained sufficient money to enable us to do our work. On the whole, the most prominent leaders favored us. Any man who is the head of a big department, if he has any fitness at all, wishes to see that department run well. A very little practical experience shows him that he cannot be run well if he must make his appointments to please spoils monger and politicians. As was almost every reform that I have ever undertaken, most of the opposition took the guise of shrewd slander. Our opponents rallied chiefly on the downright misinterpretation of what it was that we were trying to accomplish, and of our methods, acts, and personalities. And more than one live we encountered with the authors sponsors of these misinterpretations, which at the time were full of interest to me. But it'd be a dreary thing now to go over the record of exploded mendacity, or to expose the meanest amounts shown by some men of high official position. A favorite argument was to call the reformed Chinese, because the Chinese had constructed any efficient Governmental system, based in part on the theory of written competitive examinations. The argument was simple. There had been written examinations in China. It was proposed to establish examinations in the United States. Therefore, 
the proposed system was Chinese. The argument might have been applied still further. For instance, the Chinese had used gunpowder for centuries. Gunpowder is used in Springfield rifles. Therefore, Springfield rifles were Chinese. One argument is quite as logical as the other. It's impossible to answer every falsehood about the system, but it was possible to answer certain falsehoods, especially when uttered by some senator or congressman of note. Usually, these false statements took the form of assertions that we had asked preposterous questions of applicants. At times, they also included the assertion that we credited people to districts where they did not live, this simply meaning that these persons were not known to the active ward politicians of those districts. One opponent, with whom we had rather lively tilt, was a Republican congressman from Ohio, Mr. Grosvenor, one of the floor leaders. Mr. Grosvenor made his attack in the House and enumerated our sins in picturesque rather than accurate fashion. There was a Congressional Committee investigated us at the time, and on my next appearance before them, I asked that Mr. Grosvenor be requested to meet me before the committee. Mr. Grosvenor did not take up the challenge for several weeks until it was announced that I was leaving for my lance in Dakota, whereupon demon it safe. He wrote me a letter expressing his ardent wish that I should appear before the committee to meet him. I promptly cancelled my ticket, waited, and met him. He proved to be a person of happily treacherous memory, so that the simple expedient of arranging his statements in pairs was sufficient to reduce him to confusion. For instance, he had been trapped into making the unwary remark, I do not want to repeal the civil service hall, and I never said so. I produced the final abstract from one of his speeches. I will vote not only to strike out this provision, but I will vote to repeal the whole law. To this, he merely replied that there is no inconsistency between those two statements. He asserted that Rufus P. Putnam, fraudulently credited to Washington County, Ohio, never lived in Washington County, Ohio, or in my congressional district, or in Ohio, as far as I know. Reproduce a letter which, thanks to a benefit providence, he had himself written about Mr. Ruffus P. Putnam, in which he said, Mr. Ruffus P. Putnam is a legal resident of my district, and he has relatives living there now. He explained first, that he had not written the letter, second, that he had forgotten he hadn't written the letter, and third, that he was grossly deceived when he wrote it. He said, I have not been informed of one applicant who has found a place in the classified service for my district. We confronted him with the names of eight. He looked them over and said, Yes, the eight men are living in my district as now constituted, but added, that his district had been gerrymandered, so that he could no longer tell who did and who didn't live in it. When I started to further question him, he accused me of a lack of humor 
and not approaching that his statements were made in a jesting way. And then announced that, that Congressman making his speech on the floor of the House of Representatives was perhaps in a little different position from a witness on the witness stand. And Frank admitted that he did not consider his attitude of statement necessary when he was speaking as a congressman. Finally, he rose with great dignity and said that it was his constitutional right not to be questioned elsewhere as to what he said on the floor of the House of Representatives, and accordingly he left the delighted committee to pursue its investigation without further aid from him. A more important opponent was then the Democratic leader of the Senate, Mr. Gorman. In a speech attacking the commission, Mr. Gorman described with moving pathos how a friend of his, bright young man from Baltimore, a Sunday school scholar, well recommended by his pastor, wished to be a letter carrier, and how he went before it to be examined. The first question we asked him, said Mr. Gorman, was a sordid route from Baltimore to China, to which the bright young man responded that he didn't want to go to China, and never studied up the route. Thereupon, said Mr. Gorman, we asked him about the steamship lines from the United States to Europe, then branched him off into geology, tried him in chemistry, and finally turned him down. Apparently, Mr. Gorman did not know that we kept full records of our examinations. I, w I at once wrote to him, saying that I had carefully looked through all examination papers and had been able to find one question even remotely resembling any of these questions which he alleged had been asked, and that I would be greatly obliged if he could give me the name of the bright young man who had deceived him. Ever, that bright young man remained permanently without a name. I also asked Mr. Gorman if he did not wish to give us the name of his informant, to give us the date of the examination in which he was supposed to have taken part, and offered if he would send down a representative to it through our files to give him all the aid we could in his effort to discover any such questions. But Mr. Gorman, not hitherto known as a sensitive soul, expressed himself as so shocked at the thought that the veracity of the bright young man should be doubted that he could not bring himself to answer my letter. So I made a public statement to the fact that no such question had ever been asked. Mr. Gorman brooded over this, and during the next session of Congress he rose and complained that he received a very imprudent letter from me. My letter was a respectful note calling attention to the fact that few was he could by personal examination satisfy himself that his statements had no foundation in fact. He further stated that he had been cruelly called to account by me because he had been endeavoring to right a great wrong that the Civil Service Commission had committed, but he never, then or afterwards, furnished any clue to the identity of that child of his fondest fancy, the bright young man without a name. This is a condensation of a speech. I, at the time, 
made to the St. Louis Civil Service Reform Association. Senator Gorman was then the Senate leader of the party that had ditched been victorious in the congressional elections. The incident is of note chiefly in a setting like the mental makeup of the man who at the time was one of the two or three most influential leaders of the Democratic Party. Mr. Gorman had been Mr. Cleveland's party manager in the presidential campaign and was the Democratic leader in Congress. It seemed extraordinary that he should be so reckless as to make statements with no foundation in fact, which he might have known that I would not permit to pass and challenge. Then as now, the ordinary newspaper in New York and elsewhere was quite as reckless in its misstatements of fact about public men and measures, but for a man in Mr. Gorman's position of responsible leadership, such action seemed hardly worthwhile. However, it is at least to be said for Mr. Gorman that he was not trying by falsehood to take away any man's character. It would be well for writers and speakers to bear in mind the remark of Puddinghead Wilson to the fact that while there are 999 kinds of falsehood, the only kind of specifically condemned in scripture, just as murder, theft, and adultery are condemned, is bearing false witness against one's neighbor. One of the worst features of this old spoil system was the ruthless cruelty and brutality it so often bred in the treatment of faithful public servants without political influence. Life is hard enough and cruel enough at best, and this is as true of public service as of private service, and there is no system where it be possible to do away with all favoritism and brutality and meanness and malice, but at least we can try to minimize the exhibition of these qualities. I once came across a case in Washington which very keenly excited my sympathy. Under administration prone to the one which sounds connected, a lady had been ousted from a government position. She came to me to see if she could be reinstated. This was not possible, but by act of work, I did get her put back in a somewhat lower position, and this only by appeal to the sympathy of a certain official. She was so proud and careworn that she sounded my sympathy, and I made inquiries about her. She was a poor woman with two children, a widow. She and her two children were an actual one. She could barely keep the two children decent could cried, and she could not give them the food growing children need. Three years before, she had been employed in a bureau of a department of Washington, doing her work faithfully at a salary about $800. It was enough to keep her and her two children in clothing, food, and shelter. One day, the chief of the bureau called her up and told her that he was very sorry, but that he had to dismiss her. In great distress, she asked him why. She thought that she had been doing her work satisfactory. 
He answered her that she had been doing very well, and that he wished very much that he could keep her, and that he would do so if he possibly could, but he could not, for a certain senator, given his name, a very influential member of the Senate, who had demanded her place for a friend of his who had influence. The woman told the bureau chief that it meant turning her out to starve. She had been thirteen or fourteen years in the public service. She had lost all touch with her friends in her native state. The dismissal meant absolute want for her and her children. On this, the chief was a kind man, said that he would not have her turned out, and sent her back to her work. But three weeks afterwards, he called her up again and told her he could not say how sorry he was. The thing had to be done. The senator went around in person to know why the change had not been made, and had told the chief that he would himself be removed if the plates were not given him. The senator was an extremely influential man. His wants had to be attended to, and the woman had to go. And go she did, and turned out she was, to suffer with her children, and to starve outright, or to live in semi-starvation, just as might befall. I did not blame the bureau chief, who hated to do what he did, although he lacked the courage to refuse. I do not even very much blame the senator, who did not know the hardship that he was causing, and who had been couched by long training in the small system. But this system, a system which permits and encourages such deeds, is a system of brutal iniquity. Any man who cuts him to dealing with practical politics can with difficulty keep a straight face when he reads or listens to some of the arguments advanced against civil service reform. One of these arguments, a favorite with machine politicians, takes the form of appeal to party loyalty and filling minor offices. Why, again and again, these very same machine politicians take just as good care of henchmen of the opposite party as those of their own party. In the underworld of politics, the closest ties are sometimes those which knit together the active professional work workers of opposite political parties. A friend of mine in the New York legislature, the hero of the Alpha and Omega incident, once remarked to me, when he had been in the public life a little longer, Mr. Roosevelt will understand that there are no politics in politics. And the politics to which he was referring to this remark could be taken literally. Another illustration of this truth was incidentally given me about the same time by an acquaintance, a Tammany man named Constantine, a good fellow according to his lights. I had been speaking to him a fight in one of the New York downtown districts, a Democratic district in which the Republican Party was in a hopeless minority, and more respecting to the half-bred and stalwart factions. It had been an interesting fight in more than one way. For instance, the Republican Party at the general election polled somewhat like 550 votes, and yet 
at the primary, the two factions polled 725 all told. The sum of this, the sum of the parts, was thus considerably greater than the whole. There have been other little details that made the contest worthy of note. The hall in which the primary was held had been hired by the stalwarts from a conscientious gentleman. To him, the half-breds replied to know whether they could not hire the hall away from their opponents and offered him a substantial money advance. The conscientious gentleman replied that his word was as good as his bond, that he had hired the hall to the stalwarts, that it must be theirs. But he added that he was willing to hire the doorway the half-breds if they paid him the additional sum of money they had mentioned. The bargain was struck, and the meeting of the hostile host was spirited. When the men who had rented the doorway sought to borrow the path for the men who rented the hall, as I said, my friend Cotsigan, about the details of the struggle, as he seemed thoroughly acquainted with them, and he smiled good naturedly over my surprise at their having been more of votes cats than there were members of the party in the whole district, said I. Mr. Cotsigan, you seem to have a great deal of knowledge about this. How did it happen? Which replied, Come now, Mr. Roosevelt. You know it's the same gang that folks in all the primaries. End of chapter 5, part 1. Recording by Iron Hatley, Memphis, Tennessee, USA.